Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alexander Schmieding and you're listening to From Vision to Creation, a podcast that dives deep into the minds of visionaries who pursued their passions and made their visions a reality. On each episode, we will have conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, industry leaders, and business owners, and we'll explore the mindset that fueled their desire to take their dreams from vision to creation. This podcast is brought to you by Proper Placement, a full-service marketing agency that can help promote your business through social media marketing, paid advertising, email marketing, and more. Find out how we can help grow your business at properplacement.com. At Proper Placement, we don't have clients. We have partners. Welcome back to another episode of From Vision to Creation. I'm your host, Alexander Schmieding, and today we have the privilege of introducing you to a remarkable guest whose life story is a testament to the fact that everything happens for a reason. Join me in welcoming Tony Fox, the former executive vice president of corporate communications at Comedy Central and MTV. As we'll hear in today's episode, Tony's professional journey was shaped by a tragic event that ultimately changed the course of his life in an unexpected way. What emerged from the ashes of that hardship was a profound love for writing, a love that would guide him toward a purposed and fulfilling career. Early on, Tony landed an entry-level job as a messenger at HBO. Despite only working there for a few months, Tony managed to turn an hour with a top executive into a compelling letter of recommendation that would propel his career to new heights. How did he do it? By recognizing this unique opportunity and being bold enough to seize the moment. Little did Tony know that his courage and his love for writing would open doors he could only dream of. Armed with an English degree, his exceptional skills in language and storytelling quickly set him apart in his field, allowing him to help shape networks that captured the hearts and minds of audiences around the world. Join us on Tony's incredible journey, exploring the lessons he's learned and the mindset that fueled his tremendous success. Get ready to be inspired as we journey from vision to creation with the one and only Tony Fox. Hey, Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alexander. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you. Let's start with the story about your brother. My brother was pre-med. He spent his nights in the library. I was not pre-med. I was spending my nights at the bar. I was there for a whole week. Just met all these wonderful people, and I decided to go to the same school, which may or may not have been a good idea. But what uh, ended up happening, he was pre-med. I was biology, chemistry, and I would read his books from the year before. I'd be up partying all night, but I have a really good memory and recall. So I could read the yellow underline at two in the morning, go in and ace the test the next day. And I did a lot of that. And I eventually dropped out because I told my parents, I'm wasting your money. I'm not cheating per se, but I'm cutting corners. And, you know, I just, I needed to stop. And what precipitated that was ending up in the same class as my brother, a very difficult um, organic chemistry class. And in the beginning of the semester, I would study and then soon get distracted by parties, women, alcohol, <laughs> and other things. But in this particular case, it was a pop quiz early in the semester I had been studying. I got my quiz back. It was 24 out of 25. And this is the only class I had ever been in with my brother. We didn't sit together or anything. 
And I was feeling kind of cocky, so I went over to him and I sort of flung my test at him. And uh, it was 24 out of 25. And he had this sad look in his face. And I thought to myself, I finally beat this prick. He <laughs> turned his test over and it was 25 out of 25. Oh, my gosh. And that was the moment that I said, Tony, stop. What are you doing? Long story short, I took a year off. I ended up living with my older sister's ex-boyfriend who killed himself the last day of Mardi Gras. I was 19 years old. Oh my he gosh. was 28. And it was traumatic for me. Uh, and I started keeping a journal. And uh, when I decided to go back to college, I went back to Lake Forest, which is where my brother went, to finish two years. And then I transferred out uh, to Ithaca College. But now I was an English major. Because of my experience with this death, and it was horrible, I started writing and I thought, well, maybe I'm more interested in this. And it was a really important decision that I made because ultimately my writing, my communication skills is what built the career that allowed me to retire at 55. Wow. And so your brother, were you guys close in age? 17 months apart. Oh, okay. And we were very close uh, friends. We, We used to beat the shit out of each other when we were kids but <laughs> as brothers tend we were to. always friends you know we'd fight and I, I told this story last night that we'd be fighting each other some stranger would come break it up and we start beating up the stranger for breaking up our fight you know because we were close like don't touch my brother right you know, right if anyone's gonna hit my brother yeah, it's gonna be yeah. me so uh, my my peeling off and becoming an english major uh was really a seminal moment in decision and i'm proud of myself for recognizing it and, and the reason I asked if you guys were close in age is because I thought it was interesting that you were both pursuing the same major. Was it a bit of a competition thing? Well, we were both good in math. And I, you know, I grew up uh, next door to a, a, a large wilderness area called the Great Swamp. And I spent a lot of time down there catching turtles and snakes and stuff like that. So I was into science and science and math are very closely related. And I think there was just a certain order to science that you know, or math that, you know, there's only one answer, right answer. And there's a route to it and you either know how to get there or not. But as a kid, I was always kind of an entertainer and I was a good storyteller. So here's the, the, the story about HBO. I was painting houses. I spent a year in Ithaca. Uh, my girlfriend who became an, a soap actress, very successful soap actress, uh, was a year behind me. And I decided to stay behind to wait for her to graduate before we went to New York or whatever we were going to do. It was great. We lived in a cabin on a lake. I worked as a bartender in a hot restaurant in town. It was a lot of fun. She graduates and gets a job on a soap within a week, making $2,000 a day. Wow. Yeah. Who was she? Do you mind me asking? Her name is Kate McNeil, and she was on As the World Turns, and she played a villain, and she was probably on for seven years, something like that. Wow. Okay, cool. And, you know, I'd go out to dinner, and people, like, hiss at her, like, you know, they couldn't tell the character (laughs) from the actress. Right. (laughs) That's so funny. So so you guys are living in a cabin. She lands this job, and so I guess this sparks something in you. Well, I'm in New York, and I'm I don't really know what I want to do yet. You know, I'm an English major. I'm not really a writer per se. So I struggled a little bit. And thankfully, I had another friend who a lot of our friends were already working in New York doing various semi-entry level jobs. And we didn't really know how to get any traction. And um, so we were painting houses together. And it turns out this fellow's brother-in-law was working at HBO. The cable industry was created by HBO. Before there was ESPN, MTV, HBO figured out how to bounce a satellite signal off a transponder and deliver it to a home. Uncut movies. It launched in 72. I ended up joining them in 1980. Oh, so you were one of the 
one of the I first people. Very early on. Yeah. And what happened was um, my buddy Scoot was painting houses with his brother-in-law was working in human resources at HBO. And he he knew we were looking for jobs. And he said, well, Tony, maybe you can come work for HBO. But then the sister jumped in and said, hey, wait a minute. What about, you know, what about Scoot? And he was a little concerned about nepotism, but he caved to his wife, obviously. <laughs> and Scoot got this job, a messenger job at HBO. Paid nothing, but it was a foot in the door to right. not only the Harvard Business School of the industry because they were the first and they were making money hand over fist. They were hiring 20 people a day. And so when you were presented with this opportunity to work at HBO as a messenger, is that how you saw it? Did you see it as a foot in the door? Absolutely. I knew because I was college educated, as I said, I was a pretty good communicator. I looked at it as a way to get access to decision makers. And uh, I decided I was going to be the best messenger they had ever seen. And Scoot, by the way, did the job for four months mm. and got an entry-level job in the marketing department. And his boss, this wonderful woman named Dana McGee, Scoot, of course, recommends me for the job when he leaves it. And she's like, listen, I can't keep hiring these guys who are in the job for three months and move on. You know, it's, it's work for me. Mm -hmm. And he convinced her. He said, well, listen, just meet him. And if you meet him and you don't want to give him the job, fine. Well, of course, I, I convinced her to give me the job. And uh, she was a wonderful lady. I ended up soaring past her in my promotions, you know? Wow. So here's what happens. Um, I get a call one night. And, and meanwhile, I'm, I, I, I'm doing favors for anybody. I'm, my job is to run tape, program logs, whatever it is, whatever people need between our studio on 23rd Street and the Time Life building, which is where HBO was headquartered. And uh, I get a call one day from the executive assistant of uh, this number three executive there. His name happened to be Tony Cox, one letter away. Oh, that's hysterical. One letter away from mine. At this point, I'm such a low on the totem pole. I don't have, a, I don't have an office. I don't have a cubicle. I have a phone on the ninth floor, which happens to be the power floor where all the executives, you know, offices were. And... I had this flirty thing going on with the receptionist who was super cute and we were always talking. So I get the call from the executive uh, of Tony Cox and she happens to know that I have this station wagon that I take home during the week. Dana McGee, my boss, would get it on the weekends. And I happen to live in Chatham, New Jersey. Tony Cox and his mother both live in Summit right next door. Oh, you're kidding. No. So I get the call and she, she goes, Tony, I understand you have a station, HBO station wagon. Uh, Tony Cox just bought a Sony console TV for his mom. And back then TVs were like, came in a piece of furniture kind of thing. It was huge. Right. And uh, the executive assistant said, would you help Tony get the thing back to summit? I know you live in Chatham. And I'm like an hour in the car with the number three executive. Are you kidding me? Of course <laughs> Sign I would. me up. We drive to Chatham, a suburb of New, of New York. And we hit it off immediately. We're talking sports. We're talking all, you know, the industry. So we get to his mom's house. She's away. And we unload the thing and we put it in her garage, covered up with like a moving blanket. And then I go to drop him off. And we pull up in front of his house. He looks at me and he goes, I really appreciate this favor you did for me. I owe you one. And he grabs me, he looks me straight and I squeezes my hand and he starts to get out of the car. I've got alarm bells going off in my head. Tony, this is the moment. This is the moment. You got to seize this moment. Starts to get out of the car. I grab him by the jacket sleeve and it startles him. I kind of like pull him back into the car and he's like, <laughs> what are you doing? 
I said, listen, Tony, I'm college educated. I took this messenger job at HBO to get my foot in the door in a great company in an industry that's blowing up. If I find an entry-level job here at HBO that I'm interested in, would you consider writing me a letter of recommendation? Looks me straight in the eye, squeezes my hand. He goes, you bet I will. Oh, my this God. is a Friday. Oh my God. I have the goosebumps. <laughs> uh, gets better. That Monday morning, I come back from my first run down at the studio. And at this point, I know the executive vice president of the studio, the head of the tape library and the 3M tape salesman. I'm playing three sets of tennis every Tuesday at the Midtown Tennis Club as a pissant, you know, messenger. But I was an athlete and they're like, yeah, Fox, you're in. So, um, I come back from one of my runs, and there's the really cute receptionist, and she's got a stack of messages in her hand. And she goes, oh, Tony Fox. Everybody wants to talk to Tony Fox, Mr. Popularity. And I'm like, <laughs> I haven't figured this out yet. I'm like, what's going on? What did I do wrong? So I, get, I, I start reading these messages, and they're from all these managers, directors, maybe a couple of VPs in there. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what's going on? What's wrong? And I start going to meet some of these people. And... Um, I think I'm on like my third interview and I'm, I finally can't, I go, what's going on here? And the guy reaches reach into his um, drawer and pulls out a full page memo that Tony Cox had written that morning. And it basically wow. told the story about how we met, you know, what I had done for him. And he thought I had great potential and, and he wanted all of his directors and department heads to talk to me about a job. And the last line of the memo was, I want you to talk to him about a job in your department, because if you don't, I might just give him your job. Oh, my gosh. So at, at this point, how long had you been at HBO? Couple months. Couple months. Couple okay. months. And, and you know, this. I think there's the big lesson in this, I'm, there's several, but one thing that's really standing out to me is nowadays we're so used to instant gratification, you know, mm -hmm. on social media and, you know, having the internet or smartphones, um, being able to stream what we want, when we want. I think that a lot of people kind of have the wrong idea that you're going to just land this, you know, big Dream job. job. Exactly. Yeah. Right at the beginning, right when you graduate. But you took on the messenger role just as a way to get your foot in the door. And what do you think the secret sauce in that was? Was it just your willingness to, you know, do a good job and be the best that you could be? I think that was it. It was about not feeling too above anything, you know, right. I, I felt lucky just to get into the company. And, but I also knew that this was a great, great opportunity to move forward because, you know, and again, I was not in business before this, but I knew HBO was a great brand. I knew the industry itself was growing and I knew that they were hiring people left and right. What better place to put yourself right. than in that situation? And so I recognized that as an opportunity and I said, I'm going to be the best damn messenger I can. And I will never say no to anyone for a request. You know, I was moving, uh, you know, a woman asked, hey, I, I'm moving. Can you help me move out of my apartment? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? I'll do it at lunch. Let's <laughs> put it at lunch. I love that. And, but I developed a reputation. And uh, so after Tony Cox, I basically had my choice of all the departments that he oversaw, sales, marketing, and PR. And be because of my English major and my ability to write, my ability to tell good stories. That's mm -hmm. what PR is, is selling people by telling them a story that you, they want to tell. And so, um, I picked PR and, um, unbelievably the guy was the head of sports publicity. I was a jock, you know, lettered in all sorts of sports. I was a state champ in hockey in 72 in high school. So I was really into sports and there was a guy that handled, he was the head of sports publicity at HBO and they mostly did 
World Championship Boxing. They did Wimbledon. They had Inside the NFL about, you know, the, the football league. And um, this gentleman, he had a bitter divorce and he was getting uh, psychological help, but he was putting in for more sessions than he was doing and he got caught. And mm. the company had to fire him because the insurance company said, listen, you've got to enforce this stuff because if you don't, we'll drop you as a, you know, as a client, insurance client. And I love this guy, love this guy. And I come into the office one morning. Um, we have our weekly staff meeting. It might even be a daily staff meeting, but uh, everybody, 30 people around the room. The woman who ran the department was not a very nice lady. Uh, I've worked for a few tough ones, but in this case, she, she's looking around the room and she's, she sees me. She, and she tells the story that the fellow's been, been let go and everybody. And uh, he had been taking me to price fights in Atlantic City, showing me the ropes, even though it wasn't really my job. I handled mm -hmm. the awards program. I did a lot of other stuff. And I was kind of like a junior publicist. So wherever they needed help, I would pitch in. But he would take me to fights, you know, I'd get my own hotel room, you know, sit ringside. It was pretty exciting stuff. So the boss tells the story. The guy's gone. And she looks around and she goes, Fox, you've been to a few fights with Tom. Um, you think you can handle the sports PR job? And, um, you know, I'm sitting there like, are you kidding? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I think I can. And I, at 26 or 27 years old, became the head of sports publicity at HBO. And when you said, yes, I think I can, did you totally believe it? Yeah, I did. And, and, and I think there's something too, to just, again, that, that's an, the same quality that you had as a messenger, your willingness to just jump in and do the best job that you could. And I think that that's really admirable because I think that a lot of people get scared when they're presented with, you know, major promotions. Maybe they feel a bit of imposter syndrome, like they're yeah. not ready for it. Well, and, and I'm, I'm sure some of those emotions were flowing through me, but it was, again, one of those things where I use sports analogies a lot. You know, someone throws you the ball, you, you catch it, you know? Right. And, and when I was a manager of people, you know, I would always look for the the guys who would dive for the ball in the end zone. The guys who always, or women, that would volunteer. If something needed to be done, the first person that would raise their hand or the first person, if there was uh, additional training available, that would sign up for that. That that says something about the person. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting, too, that you became head of sports at such a young age because you were a jock growing up. Right. And then you became an English major and now you're head of sports. Exactly. Sports PR. I didn't run the, the sports production sports department, PR. but I developed a relationship with uh, the executive producer of HBO Sports, who was a genius. Well, I've got a great story here, actually. It's another really good one. Uh, my parents were New York subscribers. And as an English major and someone who's into good writing and literature, I've been a long time uh, New Yorker subscriber. And um, I was, when HBO started its relationship with Mike Tyson it was sort of the golden age of boxing. And we were, we were responsible. We paid him $37 million for a seven fight deal to keep him off of pay-per-view. And it, I don't know how many millions of subscribers HBO added as a result of that. Tyson was the hottest boxer coming up in 40 years. And I even went up and saw him at his training camp in Catskill, not too far from here. And, uh, I was interested in pursuing, I had read the story, um, there was a guy named uh, Ray Boom Boom Mancini. He was a middleweight. And he was, I've been told, partly responsible for inspiring the character of Rocky. He was an Italian-American. 
His father was a boxer, but had to go off to the Korean War, got wounded, and was never able to fight for the title. Mancini was fighting for the title. He might have even... No, I think he was fighting for the title. He might have had one title, and this Rostamon named Livingston Bramble was uh, held the other title. So they were going to have their first fight. And Mancini, I got to remember, I goes, Man- Mancini loses the first fight, and he gets cut badly. And back then, this, these are 15-round fights. They later reduced them to 12 just to reduce the punishment on the fighters. <laughs> and so the story that I'm reading is in an obscure journalism review called the, the uh, Missouri Journalism Review. And it's a fight. It's a story about the, the rematch between Bramble and Mancini. And Ross Greenberg, the executive producer, brilliant as he was, anticipates that Mancini could maybe get cut again. So he puts a microphone on the ring doctor. And what happens is if someone's hurt, the referee stops the fight and calls in the ring doctor. So sure enough, nine rounds in, Mancini's bleeding above the eyes. I mean, they use razor blades to cut the eyelids to relieve the pressure so they can see. This is real stuff that they do. And Mancini's bleeding like crazy. The referee stops the fight. And Ross, you know, throws the microphone switch on the ring doctor who gets called in. And you hear Mancini beg the doctor because this is it. This is the rematch. He loses this. His career's over. And he's still in this fight. He might even be ahead on some of the referees car or the judges cards. And you hear him beg for the fight continue. And it was the most dramatic moment. And this is a writer capturing all of this who was at this fight. His name turned out to be Bill Barish. And he was a contributor to the New Yorker. So I, I take the story. The story's like 30 pages. And I write a memo to and president of HBO Sports, executive producer, a copy of my boss has said, read this story. I'm going to get this writer to write about our relationship with Mike Tyson. I mean, I had no idea whether I was actually going to be able to do it. But I just threw it out there. And I started inviting this guy because we had a bunch of Tyson fights. I ended up going to 27 Tyson fights in a row. Wow. And it took me at least a year to get even a response from this guy. And finally, he starts responding. And I end up getting him to come to Atlantic City for a Tyson-Michael Spinks fight. And Michael Spinks and Leon Spinks were brothers that were uh, Olympic gold medalists. Uh, They were lighter weight in some cases. So they they had to bulk up to fight as a heavyweight. And I finally get Barish. Bill Barish says, I'm coming. And I'm like, oh, my God. And it's a crazy night because um, I'm the only HBO PR person in Atlantic City. And I get a call from the head of talent relations, this wonderful guy named Arthur Badavis. And he's like, Tony, I've got uh, Billy Crystal and Rob Reiner are coming to the fight, guests of HBO. I've got passes to Trump's pre-fight party because this is at Trump Plaza, long before he was president, obviously. And I've got a limo coming to get you. And uh, take you to, to basically Trump Plaza was adjacent to the Atlantic City Convention Center, which is where the actual fight was being held. And it's crazy. And I'm with a girlfriend. I've got Bill Barish, the New Yorker writer, and a buddy of his who's a novelist. We go pick up Billy and Rob, and we go into the lobby of Trump Plaza. And Billy had just done City Slickers, the cowboy movie. So he's pretty popular. No one really knew who Rob Reiner was, but... He starts getting mobbed and he's getting very uncomfortable. So I call security and the security for this event are New Jersey State Troopers. They're like 6'5", 280 and <laughs> your black storm boots, the craziest stuff. And I have a full access credential and I say, hey, listen, I got it. We're going to Trump. I flash the uh, passes to Trump's party. 
Meanwhile, ringside seats, this is 1988, are 3,000 apiece. A ticket to Trump's pre-fight party, you couldn't put a number on it. Mm -hmm. You just couldn't. So we go up a back elevator to this party. It's a suite up at the top of the hotel. Doors open up, and standing right in front of me is Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, Madonna, Don Johnson, billionaires, too. All the billionaires from New York, Ron Perlman, all these crazy billionaires. And it's Trump's pre-fight party. And I never was asked to give up the passes. So I get my group in. I realize I've got all these passes. I got to go get some more people into this party. <laughs> I found Gary Trudeau, the cartoonist who was doing a show for HBO. I was like, Gary, come on. You want to go to the Trump's party? So we end up going and have a great time. And long story short, the fight is over in 98 seconds. Whoa. Bill Barish, the writer... I have the headset just like this, sitting ringside, listening to the commands from the television truck, Ross Greenberg, calling the fight and cameras and all this shit. But I've also got Barish's drinking wild turkeys. And I've got like four of them lined up. And the guy ends up getting hammered. And then the fight, the fight's over 98 seconds. And he's so drunk. And he's sitting like right next to Ray Leonard. We're all right in the front row. The splatter seats we used to call. <laughs> and he jumps up and he's screaming, fix, fix. And I'm thinking, I've spent, you know, two two years trying to make this story happen. And it's going to get my, my ass fired. Because oh the story is going to be a nightmare. Well, the guy obviously sobers up. And what ended up, ha- ended up happening is the New Yorker office was literally across the street from the HBO headquarters on 40. 43rd, 42nd, 43rd, and 6th. And because Bill was drunk, there were gaps in the story. And the fact checker, I'll never forget her name, Dusty Mortimer Sanders, said, Tony, I need you to help fill the gaps in this thing. So we would meet clandestinely in a little park, you know, between our two streets. And a publicist is never supposed to see a big, important magazine piece like this in advance. But I had to see some of it because of Bill's getting hammered, right? So we work it out. The story runs, and I coincidentally, I'm in Atlantic City at another Tyson fight, or another boxing match. And um, I get a call, not from my boss, but from the president of HBO Sports. And I had just gotten him a huge uh, profile in the Wall Street Journal about his business acumen in landing Tyson, even though it was $37 million. You know, Tyson could have made 50 a fight if he did it through pay-per-view. His name was Seth Abraham, and he goes, Tony, I just got off the phone with Jerry Levin, who was the chairman and CEO of all of Time Warner. Oh, my gosh. Jerry had just read the New Yorker piece about HBO's relationship with Mike Tyson, and Jerry said, Seth, that's the best story I've read about HBO in five years. Seth Abraham promoted me over the phone, and he wasn't even my boss. Oh, my gosh. He said, Tony... You're the manager of sports PR, is that correct? And I, I say, yeah. He goes, well, now you're the director of HBO Sports Publicity. And I, I said, Seth, I don't even work for you. He goes, Tony, I got an handle. Oh, my gosh. So here was this situation that you'd been preparing for for over, over a year when trying to get in touch with um, the, your, the contact. Get them interested in our story. Exactly. And then you think, oh, no, it's all falling apart. Yet it all fell together for you. It was a 4,000 word profile of Tyson and it predicted his downfall before it even happened. He, the writer knew what was coming and it was really an amazing story. And when you were chasing, when you were trying to look for the next, you know, the next best story, 
was it, did you feel it was intuition? Did you have a, a system? How would you look for your next best story? Well, it's interesting. Um, I'll give you an example. 60 Minutes used to love Comedy Central. And in the 20 plus years I was at Comedy Central, not all of it was my own work, but I set the table in many ways for this. 60 Minutes loved Comedy Central for a very specific reason. Not only did we have interesting characters like Dave Chappelle, the South Park creator, John Stewart Colbert, but they, and they, I figured this out on my own. Nobody told me this, but it became apparent to me that not only were they good, interesting people and stories, but they had a business reason for doing it. Back then, CBS had the NFL-NFC package, which is bigger than the AFC. And they would have, often, double headers on a Sunday. And there was a huge amount of men that were watching these football games. If they could promote a piece on Jon Stewart or South Park mm. on 60 Minutes that night, huge numbers of young men would show up. Genius. The, okay. Let me tell you something. The first time Jon Stewart was on, this is a Sunday, of course. The next day, the ratings for his show jumped over 50% and never came down again. And wow. the reason I know it was the 60 Minutes piece is the age group for the show, which is not always good. You want young men, which is exactly why 60 Minutes wants us, you know, Comedy right. Central. But at the same time, to have the ratings double, and this is a very affluent uh, uh, demographic we're talking about, a little older than our normal target, but I knew it was the 60 Minutes piece because that's who showed up on Monday for The Daily Show. Okay, so you're then promoted by somebody who's not your boss right. to director of HBO Sports. How long were you director at HBO Sports? You know, a couple of years probably. And what ended up happening is I got recruited away from HBO by CBS Sports. CBS had went out and bought every major sports franchise there is. They had everything, Major League Baseball, uh, the NBA, the NCAA basketball tournament. They had everything. They called it the dream season, and they called me up. One of uh, the people who worked in the HBO publicity department was friends with the woman who ran all of communications at CBS, and he recommended me without me even knowing it. And I get a call from CBS Sports. They've got the dream season, and, and they doubled my salary. You know, I, was, wow. I was making 50-something thousand, and they, they offered me 100 with a bonus. I had to take it. You know, it was one of those things that... Right. I'd be a fool not to figure out where this would go. And uh, as much as I loved HBO and all the people there, I had you know, been there for a while now. It's like, how can I leave this? But they're but offering- Doubling your salary, that's so tempting. But it was also the number one sp sports PR job in the country. This right. was the job. And so when you're faced with a difficult decision like that, well, I guess when they double your salary, it makes it a little easier. It still scared the shit out of me. Of course. Because HBO had maybe 10 events a month. CBS Sports had 25 a weekend. I really Did, didn't want to go, but I convinced myself I had to. But did you, that's what I was going to ask. Did yeah. you, you just, I'm sure you felt it. You knew that this was the right thing for you, the, next, the right next step. Well, and interestingly, it didn't turn out well. I was oh. unhappy. Okay. And uh, it's really kind of an ugly story because um, I'll tell it to you anyway, because it's a shocker and it's just something that happens in the business world and you move on. But uh, there was a woman, when I showed up, I was hired and brought in over another guy who kind of resented me being there. And his number two had left the PR department and was working in sports programming, which is where she wanted to work. And in the meantime, CBS went out and spent 
over a billion dollars for the Major League Baseball rights. They way overpaid, which is mm -hmm. why how it became kind of a bad business story for CBS. And I was in the middle of it as the PR guy. It was kind of ugly. But even worse, the, the woman who moved into programming wasn't working out well, so they wanted to bring her back to the PR department. And the problem was they spent a billion on baseball. They hired Brett Musburger to be the first team play-by-play -play guy. And CBS management decided that America didn't like Brent Musburger and they'd spent all this money on baseball. They decided to fire him before he even called his first game. And the woman who was not working out in sports programming who came back, they brought this woman back in over me, gave her my bonus. I quit within four days. Four days. Okay. Yeah. So I, was, I was there for a year. This, this oh. all takes place over a year. Okay, got it. So you quit, and then what's the next step? And then what are you doing? Well, here, here's how it goes. It was a very busy time. And the woman who took over, she just put me out to pasture. She basically had me Xeroxing the phone book to make me miserable enough that I would quit. But mm. I didn't have a job yet. And my old buddy Scooter from HBO, the guy who had the messenger job before me, is now working at the Comedy Channel. HBO has launched their first basic cable product. It's called the Comedy Channel. Which is then later later becomes Comedy yeah, Central. Yeah, when okay. it when it merges with MTV's Ha, it becomes Comedy Central. Got it. And it just so happens my buddy Scooter's in marketing, and um, the head of PR at the Comedy Channel has just quit. He's he's going to another job. And Scoot, who is working for Larry Devaney, hmm. says, "I know a guy." And Larry calls me and says, "Hey, you know, here you're good." And meanwhile, the Comedy Channel is housed at HBO. HBO's launched it. So all these people know who I am. And they're like, whoa, if you can get Fox, get them. And so I go and I meet Larry in the morning. And I, I get called back in the afternoon to meet the president of the channel. And they offer me the job like almost immediately. Immediately. You know, I, I met Larry in the morning, in the afternoon. And I go back to my job at CBS Sports. I walk into Susan's office. I say, hey, Susan, this is probably not going to come as a huge shock. But I'm resigning. And she's like, well, Tony, we're really busy here. I need at least two or three weeks. And I'm like, Susan, you don't get it. I'm out of here for good. Right, we're done. Forever. I pivoted, walked out. I never walked into BlackRock again. I'm so curious. How did that, what, how did the interview go with, with Larry and at the comedy well, channel? Here, one of, it, it was also a matter of need. Uh, there's this huge uh, convention of television writers called the Television Critics Association Tour. They meet in Los Angeles twice a year. And it's an opportunity for networks and cable to present their new programming. You show clips of the new shows. You bring out your stars to do interviews. It's a big deal. There's 200 plus writers in this room. So it's a very efficient way to uh, get people excited about your programming. Comedy Channel had bought the Ernie Kovacs library and Ernie Kovacs widow, widower, Edie Adams was uh, still alive. And so we were going to bring her, they were going to bring her out. Uh, and we also had this, this wonderfully creative original show called Mystery Science Theater 3000. I don't know if you've ever seen or heard it, but it was brilliant. I won't get into the details of it, but <laughs> the star of that show was going to be at TCA. TCA was the next day. I literally, or maybe two days later. So I quit CBS. I, I joined Comedy Channel the next day, and I'm on an airplane that day flying to Los Angeles to do the TCA. Wow. I know. It was crazy. And, uh, you know, HBO had, had me kind of under their wing. So they had all the infrastructure set up. I just showed up with our talent. And it, that was my first gig, literally. 
So you joined the Comedy Channel before it became, before it merged with MTV's Ha, Correct. and then became Comedy Central. What was it like working at Comedy Channel when they merged? Well, it was scary only because a lot of people were going to lose their jobs. And it, we used to call it the Comedy Wars. And basically what happened was MTV was in the basic cable business. They had MTV, I think, at that point. And this is early on. They had Nickelodeon. Might have had VH1 at that point. So when, when HBO launched the Comedy Channel as a basic cable network, they were freaking out. Like, they're going after our young people. We got to stop them. And this is before fiber optic cable. This is back in the coaxial cable days where cable systems had a limited capacity of channels, maybe 40 or 50. And so HA, which is MTV's comedy channel, was launched really as a preemptive strike to stun the growth of the comedy channel because there just weren't a lot of, you know, channels available, number one. You know, CNN had launched, ESPN had launched, so the, the channel capacity is filling up. And we were unproven. Uh, but what was, what was interesting about it is, ha, because Viacom was basically an old syndication company that old, old used to sell all the off-CBS programming. So they had Mary Tyler Moore. They had the, the Honeymooners, all that stuff. They were running off-network sitcoms and old programming. We were making original stuff. And the media responds to original stuff. Like Mystery Science Theater 3000, the preeminent television critic in the country was a guy named Tom Shales who wrote for the Washington Post and it was his favorite show. He wrote five love letter reviews in two years. And um, that was our first hit. And that's how you build a network. So we're chugging along. Hot, we, the comedy wars, we're killing each other. We're killing each other for advertisers, for distribution on cable systems. And um, I was working on another one of my major stories. It was the Wall Street Journal. It was going to be the A-head column, section two, front page. There was a reporter, wonderful guy named Dennis Neal who was a, a Mystery Science Theater, Theater 3000 fan. And so I talked to the MST 3000 producers and I said, can this guy come out and help write an episode? Now, you have to understand, another one of my PR techniques, it's an odd analogy, but I call it the Stockholm Syndrome. If you give a writer extraordinary access to, I used to do it in the Tyson fights. Remember I said the, the Barish had a headset on listening yes. to the... That is extraordinary access. And if you do it enough, the writer begins to see the world the way you want them to, through your wow. eyes. That's why it's called the Stockholm, I call it the Stockholm Syndrome. And, and so to have this Wall Street Journal reporter go be a part of this team, you know, getting to know them, hanging out, laughing, coming up with great lines and writing an episode. Me, and, and I won't even tell you the story, but I, I, I shared with them that night, I just got engaged. We ended up, my cousin, lives in Denver. We went out in a limousine. I won't tell you what happened, but it was <laughs> ridiculous. You know, I dropped him off at 6 a.m. the next morning. He looked at me and he goes, Tony, this never happened, right? I'm like, yeah, Dennis, don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so he's working on the story. And he, he also went to a, a stand-up club where one of our late night hosts, a guy named Alan Havey, was performing. And so um, the story's about to run. And all of a sudden... I forget exactly how I found out, though. But this was the story that was going to put a stake in Ha, and we would be the victors of the comedy wars. And I, I use the analogy. I felt like a boxer in the ring beating the shit out of my opponent, and all of a sudden, you know, my, my 
my corner man throws the towel and it hits me in the back of the head and the fight's over. The two <laughs> channels merged. Wow. And it was a shocker. The story never ran. I worked on it for months and because of the merger, it was all, all of a sudden insignificant. Mm. But um, I survived. Basically what happened was, and you've talked to Larry, so this will make sense, but uh, the president of the merged channels was a guy named Bob Creek and he came from the HBO side, but later worked in, um, he was like head of the Fox television group, the stations or something. He gets the job. And I'm a, at this point, I'm still the manager. Uh, uh, I'm a manager of, um, or maybe I'm a, di- I'm a director of publicity at Comedy Channel. The guy who was head of publicity at Ha was a vice president. And so the new president comes in and says, I think I want the more experienced guy. And meanwhile, this job reports to Larry Divney. He's the guy who hired me in one day. And Larry basically said, well, Tony's my guy. And if it's not Tony, I'm out. Whoa. That must, that, that must, have, that must have shaken the room a bit. Well, I find this out. I'm in a beer garden at the National Cable Show in New Orleans drunk when Creek tells me this. I, and I said to Creek, the, the president, I said, how could you pick this guy? And, and that's when he goes, well, it was Larry who said, if it's not Fox, it's not me either. And I was like, really? <laughs> of course, I find Larry in the crowd and I'm slobbering all over and hugging him, kissing him like that. Dibs, you put your, your neck on the line for me. Uh, but yeah, true story. If you could go back in time and speak to your younger self before you got started in your career and offer your, your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Be great. Mm. Be great. And uh, I learned a lot from Larry Divney. And um, one of the great things that I learned from him, you know, not only did he support me and save me on a number of occasions, that's only one example I gave you, there were more. He empowered you to be great. He didn't, you knew what the end result was, but he didn't tell you how to get there necessarily. And that's a super powerful management technique where, and I, I adopted it myself. You know, you, you get used to doing things a certain way. That doesn't mean it's the best way because things evolve. And especially at that period of my life as digital media is starting to come along. My young staff members knew, and I would say to them, we're here. I need to get to there. I'm not going to tell you how to get there. You tell me. Mm. And that is enormously empowering. And you have to be willing to let them fail as well and be responsible for that failure. But that's how people grow. That's how, how people become great. And that's what Larry, not only how he treated me, but he taught me to allow other people to be great. And it's hard to delegate when you're, when you're at the bottom, you're used to doing everything yourself. And you, the, the instant reaction is, well, I should, I'll just do it myself because I can do it faster than I can tell someone else to do it. Big mistake. Yeah. Empower them to do it. Don't tell them how, and you'd be surprised how often they come back and surprise you. Well, and, and, you know, and this is ringing true even for me, just getting started in my career. I worked for two startups, and when I felt I was being micromanaged and being told exactly how to do something, and I could tell that somebody didn't have a lot of faith in me. Squeezes any creative possibility out of the situation. Absolutely. As opposed to, you know, somebody tasking you with, with a project, 
and you can and when you feel that they believe in you you want to rise to the occasion you want to work even it. harder you want to own every bit of it and yes like, look at that <laughs> that's powerful great. stuff uh, that's thank you thank you so much for talking to me today tony it's this my was pleasure. A, this is amazing it's been fun it was i've enjoyed it alexander thanks for having me As we wrap up this episode of From Vision to Creation, we're left with an overwhelming sense of inspiration, thanks to the incredible journey of our guest, Tony Fox. Perhaps one of the most awe-inspiring moments of Tony's journey was when he fearlessly asked an executive he'd just met for a letter of recommendation. This pivotal moment perfectly demonstrates that being courageous can lead to extraordinary achievements. Tony's story reminds us that life's challenges can also be the stepping stones to greatness. It's also proof that our passions can unlock our true potential and that believing in ourselves can change the trajectory of our careers and lives. As we bid farewell to Tony Fox and his motivating episode, may his journey inspire you to pursue your own dreams and boldly create the life you envision. Like Tony, we need to dare to put ourselves out there, for it is often in those daring moments that the true magic of creation unfolds.